My name is Luke Castle. Welcome to The Call Sheet, your podcast for Michigan's filmmaking community. Today, we have Jesse Nesser and Philip Sean Devon in the studio for Season 1, Episode 5. But first, some community announcements. Director Jesse Nesser just wrapped his first narrative short, The Mailman, but more on that later. Darren Brown announced his red carpet premiere of The Users will be on January 4th at the Bel Air Luxury Cinema, and early bird tickets are now on sale on Eventbrite. Director Michael McCallum and his production company, Rebel Pictures, has their short, Low Road, as the finalist for the best short film at the iFilmmaker International Film Festival in Barcelona, Spain. We are so proud that Michigan filmmakers are getting recognition, even out of this country. DreamBlock Films released their trailer for their film, The Landlord, The Awakening, which is also to be released in 2020. It looks incredibly eerie, so go check it out on YouTube. The premiere of Devil's Night, Dawn of the Nyan Rouge, was this past Sunday, and it was sold out. They even had to add an extra theater for Overflow. Well done to the cast and crew for their hard work. Actors Loft had their open house this past Monday, and it was a great turnout. If you missed it, reach out to them on Facebook, and they'll be happy to give you a walkthrough. The Detroit Filmmaker Awards are accepting submissions now, so go ahead and submit. Any high school seniors interested in going into the film industry should visit the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences website for five open national scholarship opportunities. They're accepting applications now, so go out there and do it. That's it. That's all we have for uh, announcements this week. Um, we're going to jump right into our, our interviews. This episode is sponsored by Castle Heart Studios. If you have a project, a music video, a commercial that you'd like to do, check out Castle Heart Studios. Your project begins here. He's an award-winning documentarian. He just wrapped his first narrative short, which Gloria and I had the pleasure of working on this weekend. And he is the director and producer of the documentary Walk With Me. Let's welcome Jesse Nesser to the studio. How you doing, Jesse? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, inviting us on set this weekend. It was a lot of fun inviting working with you. Inviting you on set. You guys uh, I did more than that. I basically uh, asked to take away your entire weekend and throw everything at you um, that came my way in terms of, of production jobs. It was, it was great. It was a weekend where it was spent. It was great. Well spent. <laughs> You're all very nice. It was fun. Actually, it was a lot of fun getting on set again. And it's nice to work with people you, you enjoy being around. Mm, I agree. So. I try to surround myself only with those people. And for the most part, I've been successful with that. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. that's the name of the game, right? Um, let's start with Walk With Me, because this is where our story started together, sure. right? Um, tell us a little bit about Walk With Me. Sure. So, um, walk with me. Uh, walk with me was about, or is about, um, Judge Damon J. Keith, who was the late civil rights judge uh, here in Detroit, who spent his entire judicial career uh, fighting for civil rights, and really was at the forefront of many aspects of the civil rights movement on the legal side, and. Um, he was one of the only African-American judges in Detroit at the time that he was appointed in 67, appointed months after the Detroit riots um, happened. And just by complete chance, as one of the only black judges in the city of Detroit, 
he gets the most prolific civil rights cases by by total chance, by random, because you know judges aren't uh, they don't choose their own cases; they're mm -hmm. assigned their cases. And so here's this rookie judge who the story of how he even gets to be a judge is too long for me to, to tell you, but this rookie black judge who gets the first busing case in America. Which was big. Which was big, up in Pontiac. Yep. The uh, longest racial housing discrimination case in America. Mm -hmm. The first case of reverse discrimination in America. And the biggest uh, settlement of employment, equal opportunity which was, employment. Which was huge. Right, and he gets these all within about a six-year span. Wow. All cases that if a white judge had received, very likely would have gone the other way just because those were the times and and most judges didn't have the courage that Judge Keith had to go the other way and really break new law and and break precedent and set the, you know, literally in stone in the law, set the template for many of the laws that we have today. And there are so many cases today that are that move forward because of the president that Judge Keith set back in the day. So Walk With Me tells his story. He was alive when we made the film. He was 91 when we started wow. making the film and still a judge, still an active judge. He was still a judge when you started making this? He was still a judge when I didn't he realize died that. at wow. 96. Really? He was still a judge when he still passed? Still a judge when he died. Wow. And he was only a district court judge for 10 years before he was elevated to the Court of Appeals. But in those 10 years, it was... You know, we've had judges say if, if a judge gets one of those cases in their entire career, it's a landmark case for that judge. The fact that one judge got five of these cases was unheard of. For sure. For yeah. sure. That's like, that's huge. Now you submitted this, after you guys finished it off, you submitted this to the Royal Star, which is how we were introduced, sort of. I was... I was on vacation, and uh, I, you've heard this story probably 20 times this weekend because people asked. Um, I was on vacation, and uh, I got a call from the people at the Royal Star, and they're just like, hey, you want you to, I want you to watch this. I'm like, all right. I guess there was a little bit more to it than that. But I watched it, and it was an amazing documentary, and I was really excited to have it in our festival. And lo and behold, it takes the documentary award, and not the local documentary award, but it takes the whole, like, you were competing against with everybody else in the country, and you won that award. So congratulations. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we've been fortunate to take the film around the country and show Judge Keith's story to states and communities that have never heard of him before. But there was something special about having that festival. And that was the only festival we played in in his backyard here. Yeah. And uh, to have that screening... I have so many people from the community there, so many people who made the film there. Oh, it was a packed theater that night, yeah. I remember. It was it was extra meaningful to be able to, to show that film right here where you know he wanted that movie to be shown the most. I believe we had Representative Love came out and gave a, gave an award. It was it was a it was a great night. It was. It was and a, I, I at the time I actually lived in the apartments on the other side of the movie theater, so Oh really? Uh, yeah, um, and I said uh, oh, be, I've always wanted to like go to a festival that I could walk to from my living room, and to be able to not only go to a festival but play in one was uh, I'm pretty sure that won't ever happen again. It, so, it might. Well, you don't you don't live that far still. No, it's a longer walk. <laughs> it's just a longer walk. But it would be an honor to to play there again. It's it's great. It's a great festival. So well organized. Such an eclectic variety of films. 
that uh, people would otherwise not have the opportunity to see if not for your hard work and everybody on that team who, who works day and night to bring these films to Michigan. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, so we met there, and then uh, we met again a couple a couple other times, but yeah. like I think we went back at the Freep, the uh, which is the Freep Film Festival is the what is it the Detroit Free Press right. document documentary film right. festival, yeah. and we met at a documentary mixer that they were holding, right. and we we talked I, I think we talked about this project that we just worked on maybe did you, no uh, this no was a, this last one was a pretty recent uh, all right but we we definitely talked about wanting to work together yeah that's what it was that's probably what it yeah. was. Um, and then I get a message from you just a couple days ago, yeah. about, a, about a week ago now. Yeah. And you're just like, uh, I got this thing. Do you know anybody that wants to do it? I'm like, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally down. And uh, we, we filmed a, a narrative this weekend, right. which was fun, which was called... The Mailman. Yeah. I'm all about uh, you know, extravagant titles. Yeah, I, I, I like it. So can you, what can you tell us about The Mailman without giving away too much? Well, it's uh, five minutes short. So as I was saying earlier, you know, it's hard to say too much about a five-minute short without giving away the entire short. It's faster for people to just watch it. But since they can't yet, um, it's essentially about a uh, beloved veteran neighborly mailman who, in a split second, spontaneously uh, betrays the trust of his community. It's very cool. I, I, I feel like it's a, it's a good explanation. Um, it was cold this weekend. It was, and it's cold. an outdoor shoot. It was for the ninety-eight percent of it. A blue sky autumn day. Yeah, I'm definitely doing rewrites going into the weekends. You know, instead of the guy <laughs> raking leaves and saying hi to the mailman, he's shoveling snow and saying hi to the mailman. And uh, we, we, I was hoping to have filmed this back in October and not November. But, you know, live theater, baby. Yeah. Anything can happen. So, yeah, we had to adapt to, um, you know, mid-20s, basically, which is what it was most of that day that we were on Saturday that we were out there. Oh, yeah. Um, this is your first uh, exploration into narratives, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what made you want to come over to the narrative side? You, you're a great documentary. You've done at least three other ones. Yeah. What were the other three? I did... Uh, one called The Ranch for Kids, mm -hmm. about fetal alcohol syndrome out in Montana. And I, the last doc I did was uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen. That's right. Yeah. I forgot because when you and I were talking about That's right. uh, Mike Rock, yeah, who also... Yeah. We, uh, it, you know, it's a small town, but still not small enough where two filmmakers making a movie about the same guy had never met each other or heard Isn't that about crazy? the other projects until after they had made their movies, which speaks to how interesting that guy was. Yeah, no. Go see Mike's movie too, because have you seen you know, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, we, it was. I was happy to see that we sort of took a different approach. approach to the story subconsciously, not because we had seen each other's movies. It's just that story is so rich that five other filmmakers could do a story about this guy too and have five totally different movies. That's cool. I have to see yours now because I've yeah. seen Mike's a couple times. And I've seen different versions that he's put out. Um, it was fun. I, mean, I gotta uh, see yours it now. It's much more fun than you know spending a day with these World War II pilots, you know, and they're they're telling you their war stories and their memories are. That's crazy. Uh, uh, they can't remember, you know, uh, what time they're supposed to be on set, but they remember exactly how they felt when they were in the middle of a dogfight. It just speaks wow. to how intense those days were. So that was a really fun project to do. That's cool. How long did that take you to finish? Uh, 
It took a day to shoot. We did the. It's it's primarily just really? two interviews with a lot of historical footage. We wanted to really put the focus on them, and it's part of a series that we're starting uh, with Ford, the Ford Fund, ah. called Our Voices, Our Stories. I like it. And it's really just really well set up interviews and then B-roll from their life. So it only took a day to shoot and then about a month and a half to edit. Wow, that's quick. We, you know, I, there are some documentary filmmakers that spend five hours on their one subject, following them around, and taking years and, I mean, five years, not five hours. Yeah. Yeah, years and years to shoot. My attention span is not uh, that big. <laughs> Um, back to your narrative, though. You yeah. decided to come back into narrative. So decided to come to narratives. Yeah, for a while. I grew up loving narrative movies. To this day, I'll watch far more narrative films than I'll watch documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, I fell in love with film through narrative. And so it's been on my bucket list for quite some time to do a scripted film. And uh, uh, a friend of mine who uh, ended up being our DP, John Beaver, you know, finally said, just do it, man. Yeah. Just do it. And so uh, I said, okay. I, uh, I'll, uh, I had this idea a while ago, but I'll condense it because I'm uh, using it as also an application piece to a narrative film program out in Los Angeles. Very cool. Kill two ducks with one stone, two birds with one stone. Um, they can be ducks. Ducks, birds. It's okay. But we, we both agreed we didn't want to just make an application film. Let's make a passion project, give it its all, and then also use it to apply. So we treated it as, you know, a, a straight up, you know, a, if there were no application, let's just go for it and make the best film we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was as fun as it was challenging. Would you, so being your documentary, if, if I got to work in both worlds, um, and not everybody gets that chance, which is really interesting. I like, I can't, not see myself working and having a foot in each world well these days you know that's the thing documentaries have become more and more uh narrative in their structure and their style you see more and more documentaries borrowing narrative storytelling techniques and more and more narratives borrowing documentary storytelling techniques so now's mm -hmm. the best time to try to ride both worlds because you can really translate a lot of the elements each other how did you feel going into this narrative this time since it's what did you feel that was similar and what did you feel like that was different oh, from the worlds because they're two different worlds they are very stark yeah. different worlds my confidence was uh definitely nowhere near what i thought i knew about <laughs> uh, going into a um, narrative film set i spent a lot of time over the last couple of days thinking about this and trying to pinpoint what the differences were between or are between documentary filmmaking and narrative filmmaking specifically in production on set i think the biggest difference i found was the rhythm and the the, the control you know with documentary filmmaking you're used to constantly moving forward you're mm -hmm. used to sort of you know the story's out of your hands out of your control you're quickly adapting to whatever your subject's going to do or say or how the story is going to unfold with most docs. There are other docs that are very, very scripted, um, and a lot of history docs. You really know what you're going to do. With a lot of the docs that I've done, it's been more fly on the wall, uh, following in real time, uh, those kinds of projects. And so in a way, it's challenging because you don't know where your story is going, 
but also in a way you have to do a lot less because you know you're you're just there to capture the story and then figure out what to do with it after you have all your footage mm -hmm. with narrative filmmaking 99 percent of the control is in your hands and so you have to be way more meticulous you have to be way more uh, organized you have to go in with way more of an idea of what you want to get out of this day out of this performance out of this shot than you're allowed in documentary film and as someone who's not naturally that meticulous a person it really um, came down to surrounding myself with people who were with a, a great production crew with a great cinematographer who knew which shots were worth taking longer on which mm -hmm. shots were worth skipping because you know I leave it up to me I say hey we got it it looks good let's go let's go and uh, it I learned a lot about you know again what is worth um, resetting for what's worth doing again and just being more meticulous paying more attention and, and basically having your mind on five different things at once on the actor's performance on the shots on the props and even though there are people there specifically to focus on that you won't be doing your job right if you didn't at least devote a piece of your mind to absolutely all moving uh, aspects and so the flow of a shoot was uh tricky to get used to on the narrative film and you know the the fact that it does take three hours to shoot a 40 second <laughs> I don't no. think people realize that. No. It's something I, I've, I've tried to, like when I talk to my family members that have no connection to what we do in our industry, um, I, I think I was talking to somebody this weekend, I said it's a five minute short, but it took, it took two full days to oh, shoot yeah. it. And, and they just, they didn't, they didn't get it. I'm just like, because like, when you break down a scene, you have to film it multiple times from multiple right. angles to get the story right. there. And that's if everything goes well during the takes. Absolutely. Not including, you know, the, the outtakes. The lines. Yeah. A dog not being able the to dog, jump no, on. Yeah, we did have a scene where uh, we were overly ambitious with our animal talent. I think you were very ambitious because one of the things they told us in film school was the two things you don't want to do is put a kid or a dog or an animal in, in your film and right out the gate your first time you're just like kids and animals let's do this hey, we, we like to start big. <laughs> so uh yeah no and, and it, i feel like it still worked it, like it, it worked i feel it like did. the only problem was that the dogs were too nice they were well, supposed to be vicious but they were short. too nice <laughs> the, problem, the, the scene is a, a, a mailman sitting in his van and the dog jumps up on the window and scares him you know it's sort of reinforcing <laughs> that old stereotype with the dog and the mailman the problem was our van was significantly higher mm -hmm. than we thought it was going to be. And so we had two dogs to choose from and both their owners tried to lift the dog up to to uh, have his face appear in the window. But I think the dog was so baffled by what we were doing that vicious was the last expression this dog had on his face. He's like, we're playing now? What's going on right. here? So almost, you know, What's this game? From the angle we shot it at, it just sort of looks like a dog is levitating by the window. <laughs> it didn't exactly have the, uh, you know, the intent we were hoping to have. But that is something that I, I think the documentary side served me well because the number of times you think your story's going one way and it doesn't, and you have to be okay with that and adapt to what it becomes, that happens multiple times Absolutely. in every documentary. Mm -hmm. So I think I was less bothered 
by the dog not working out as long as we had a solution, then uh, you know John was John really wanted to make the dog work and say, can we make him fly or something? And, <laughs> and I appreciate you know, everyone's effort to try to make that work, but once we figured out it wasn't, the the trick is finding what will work to still keep the story the story. I do I do have one thing one question to ask because I know that. It's quite a story to tell with the listeners and everything. Can you can you tell our listeners exactly what lengths we took to get this dog to jump up on the window? Oh, man. Well, first we tried the old conventional, uh, come on, boy, come on, up you go. That didn't work. We tried to put the dog on a dolly, uh, <laughs> uh, give him some room. Dog didn't like that. We had uh, Corey, our um, second second, climb on top of the roof of the van with the dog toy to try to get the dog to... Corey Milton. Yeah. Yeah. With chicken. There's pictures yeah, out chicken. there. I have pictures Dangling of this. chicken. And then lastly, just to ask the owners if they could lift their 70-pound dog off the ground and not be seen by the camera, basically lift them over their, their heads and have them pop through the window. And we'll see. I haven't looked at that scene yet, but... We'll see if we can make that work. Um, otherwise, it might just be an off-screen dog sound effect that we go with. But or bloopers. Or bloopers. Yeah, <laughs> we got plenty of bloopers. <laughs> but it was a great. We had uh, a few great actors on there, uh, an extraordinary DP, wonderful equipment, a great production team. It really was a great taste of narrative film, and I enjoyed myself tremendously despite the stress of the weather of the schedule of uh the flow and getting used to that i, I could see myself and do plan to do more of these mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to see something that you imagine in your head play out in real life and characters who you spend a lot of time thinking about automatically uh, just appear in front of you and it was a very cool feeling that i'd never experienced before that is cool that is very cool so what's next Huh. Do you want to go back to documentaries, narrative? What's uh, what's next for you? Editing. Editing, editing of course. For this one, and um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to have some wonderful clients uh, on the work side of film. Um, I do a lot of work with nonprofits in the area, uh, a lot of foundations, and basically do fundraising films and marketing films and have been able to get enough work where I can make film my full-time job. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the trade-off is that you have to be willing to do a lot of that in order to do a little of this and, and balancing those client-based work with the passion projects. And so um, I've got quite a bit of client-based work left to do before this year is done, but um, and there's nothing that's uh, there's there is a short I'll I'll tease you about I think I told Luke about called mm -hmm. the deer walks into a bar that um, we've been working on for a little time we actually wrote uh, a while ago but it involves a CGI deer so uh, maybe a CGI maybe deer. a CGI deer but it's about a deer <laughs> that walks into a hunting bar and starts a, a heated debate with a enthusiastic hunter about whether deer hunting can really be called environmentalism or not mm -hmm. that's another five minute little sketch short much funnier than the mailman yes um, and i enjoyed this 
tremendously, so I plan to make that and keep writing these little awesome. shorts, maybe a feature one day. But yes, very much I would do plan. Let's do a feature. Day. I'm ready. Aren't you ready for a feature? Like, just, uh, yeah. just go do it. Let's just, He's like, let's just do me. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for docs, a feature. Docs are, I, I'll always love docs. I'll always love making docs. Um, I think that it's a way for me to, I didn't major in, in film at all. I majored more in cultural history and international relations. And so mm -hmm. docs is really, it's a way for me to still stay in tune with that interest. Well, you had an interesting life growing up. If we, we talked earlier about this, you lived all over Europe growing right. up, right? In a military uh, Navy family. Yeah. And so. you have a very, um, how do I say, wide opinion or, or view of the world. Sure. It's not as closed down, sure, I would say, sure. as a lot of people. So, like, you've seen a lot of stuff, and the way you interpret things is, is very unique. Um, so I think it's cool. Thanks. No, I definitely credit uh, my upbringing to my uh, chosen profession and my interest in documentary. I grew up hating documentary films. I think we all did, though. Yeah, you're associated with what the substitute teacher plays when yeah, the teacher like, is, is out. I love documentary films. I don't know what you're talking about. You learn something, you get to watch something and not read it. Well, it sounds great freak, to me. So. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, but like as a kid, <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's not yeah. something you're interested in. Obviously, we all are now. But I also think most of the documentaries that were made when we were kids and the documentaries that are coming out now are entirely different. Again, yeah. That has to do with, with documentary filmmakers being okay with these really narrative-based uh, oh, storytelling. And, you know, accepting the fact that documentaries can have stories and can have characters and very much mirror the same structure that you would give to a narrative film. Where, where, where do you think that started? Ooh. Do you know? Can you? Can you? What do you think? That's a, you know, I, I think that film, The Cove, that came out several years ago, was a okay. big proponent of that. Super Size Me. Super Size Me. Yeah. That was a some. highly effective one too. That yeah. kind of changed everything. But then you have all the way back. You go to Deep Throat back in the. Sure, but Deep Throat would I think would have been considered quite abnormal for its time. Absolutely, absolutely. Whereas when The Cove came out, a lot of films began to follow. You know, that whole, wow, this film actually has a storyline. It actually, you know, you don't know where it's going. And you watch it much more like a thriller than a documentary. Mm -hmm. And based on the success of that, I think a lot of filmmakers saw, wow, you know, we can, it doesn't have to be 90 minutes of talking heads, you know, that you see on the Discovery Channel, that it can be high-stakes storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. If you can put together... If you can take story structure from narrative, where you have a journey um, for for the character, which is usually your subject, um, you can f follow that narrative algorithm, if you will, to still tell an engaging and interesting story. It's just it's sure. a biography now, or it's just true. Right. So I'll, you know, I'll, even with the Tuskegee doc, we laid that out. You know, with Act One, Act Two, Act Three. Absolutely. Make sure we tried to, to have different twists until you think we know where it's going, and then it goes a different direction. And and uh, you know, try to adapt that narrative mentality to documentaries. 
Very cool. Well, I'm I'm going to come back to you. Sure. I'm going to I'm going to come over to uh, our next guest. Please. Our, our next guest. He is an actor and a fight choreographer. Did I say that right? Choreographer. Choreographer. <laughs> See? Oh my gosh. So he's a fight chore- choreographer and a stuntman. He's the lead in uh, Charles Kennedy's Affliction, which we just had him on, I believe, last week or two weeks ago. Oh, awesome. Um, he does his own stunts and chor- choreo. Is that even a word, Gloria? You put choreo. Choreo. It's short for choreography. Choreography. You could do that, yeah. Yeah. For Brandon Fies, catch him when he stays? Strays. So catch him when he strays. He's the lead in Jesse McNally as Luca and the lead singer for work. What? McNally, sorry, Jesse McNally. McNally's there is, there is a McNally, uh, but that's I'll, McNally. I'll say it's, it's a deceptive name. It's it's Luchica. It's like Luchica. It's opera. Luchica. And the lead singer for We're a Band, which I tried to look for, but I couldn't find. I found. Um, but let me introduce Philip Sean Devon to the studio. Hi. <laughs> can I call you Phil or Philip? What do you like? Hey, you can call me Phil. It's Phil, all good. Phil, okay. So... <laughs> I'm not fancy. <laughs> talk, let's talk about let's talk about uh, your fort cho- your fight choreography. Yeah. Am I saying that? It's a, such a hard Chore- word. It's a choreography. Choreography. Yes. Yes. Your choreography. fight choreography. Are you like trained in martial arts or? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, so I was 11 when I started training in martial arts. I um. Which one? I, I started with Weichiru Karate, which is a an, an Okinawan style of uh, militarized combat. Cool. self-defense um and then i did that for four years i moved to michigan when i was 15 and from where uh, from st louis missouri wow st louis yeah i was born in illinois grew up in st louis um and then i moved to michigan in my uh i was that sophomore year of high school and uh, i started over and found a a kempo karate uh dojo here which kempo karate is really kind of a little bit of Chinese Kempo, uh, a lot of American kickboxing, and just elbow, elbows and knees, and it's very like boxery and loose. Um, whereas Weichiru was very much about forms, and it was um, derived from a style called Penge Noon, which is half hard, half so- soft. So my first style was very much about like this graceful but rigid kind of fighting style, and then my second kind of got me to bounce around a bunch and and use some unexpected blows. So at what point did you go, mm, I think I want to be a, an actor or a, what came first, acting or choreography uh, or stuntmanning? Ooh, that's, Which you know, came first? you know what, it's, it's funny because when you look at, you know, your childhood, you're like, I was always stuntmanning because you're always jumping off of stuff or doing something stupid. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, so like, I, I don't know if that's stuntmanning though. That's just, <laughs> that's just, that's just upsetting my parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've always had an active imagination. I'll say that acting came first. Okay. Um, but, you know, the things that got me into acting, I wasn't this well-behaved uh, Shakespeare kid. I was very much, like, into hard sci-fi and fantasy. Like, my dad grew me up on... I saw Terminator 2 when I was five. You know, so I, I thank the old man for that. Like, who lets you get away with that, right? Um, but I grew up on, you know, when Jackie Chan broke out in the early 90s in America, like... I was there for Rumble in the Bronx and all those types of stories. Uh, Ninja Drunken Turtles. Master. Yeah, Drunken Master. Ninja Turtles were popular. Batman is always something I've always loved. So, like, I grew up on comics. And so martial arts was just always in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had, like, my mom was great and enrolled me in gymnastics when I was, like, four or five. 
Uh, so like that brief period of gymnastics training at that age, and then again when I was in middle school, uh, and the martial arts just combined to have these natural instincts about movement and and the stories you can tell through movement. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things where like the two sort of came together. I, I started acting first uh, in like church plays and whatever I can get into, and then you know taking acting classes throughout um, middle school, high school and into college and then um yeah i i just kind of kept those things going off and on throughout my life but the the trick was i never really figured it to be uh, a thing i could do for a career like i don't think I was, any of us really think of that like it's right. just, we do this and it's just like it's something i feel like even the kids we're, we're filming right now in the or we're doing the podcast right now in the high school radio station here that i work with but like i don't like you do them in high school and you're just like this is is this ever going to like it doesn't i don't know if it ever registered that this could be a thing like this is not just an after school program yeah. or something i do like this could actually be like a job yeah absolutely that's the that's the crazy part it's like you you feel like i mean especially growing up in the 90s it was like certain people just got selected to be pop stars and actors mm -hmm. and and you know big names and whatever and that's the stuff you associate with the entertainment industry you don't think of all the all of the jobs that make up the entertainment industry and how many films are made and at how many different levels um, and uh, and even theater. You know, a lot of my friends are into the theater scene, so um, which I am as well. So it's it's something that you do and you think it's a hobby and you have the pipe dream of like one day I'll I'll be this famous actor, uh, but then you're like, nah, I'm gonna go and be a working stiff. So I did um, I did customer service for 12 years after high school. I graduated in '03. Um, so I, uh, I just did the working stiff thing. I didn't finish college, didn't have a good degree or anything. Um, and, uh, just kind of fell on hard times financially. And then, uh, after about 12 years of that, I just kind of, I had some, I had some life changing experiences. I just, I saw enough hardship that I thought like, you know what, if my life is going to consistently be this challenging then I might as well, I might as well try the thing I always loved. Uh, so I, I said, look. Phil, How old were you when that happened? I was, I was 28 when that happened. 28. Yeah. Your life crisis at 28. <laughs> yes, yes. We're, we start early now. We start, millennials start early. Well, I think oh, yeah. it's just, life crisis. <laughs> I think it's just like the, you know, the course of, it's, you, 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 there's a point where we all end a chapter, whether that be 28 or 24 or 22 or 36 or whatever. You just, you just come to an end and you're just like, how, how do I want this chapter to end and how do I want the next one to begin? Right. And you're sort of, I, I call it standing between two chapters. You're just like, I know where I just came from. And I know I have a bunch of blank pages in front of me. Like, what do I want to write this time? Absolutely. Right? I always think of that scene in uh, the first Matrix movie. Um, such a geek uh but, but you know neo is you know in the car on his way to meet morpheus and they're like you know strip down and we've got to search you for this bug or whatever and just do what we say don't ask questions and he's like forget it and they're like fine our way of the highway and he gets out of the car he starts to get out of the car and then trinity has to stop him and be like look you know you know exactly where that road goes you've you've, you've seen it every day mm -hmm. try something new and that's basically the way i felt at that age i was just I was just at that point where I needed to try something new and not feel so miserable. Uh, I had a lot of issues with depression, um, uh, so it was important for me to 
do something that I was going to lift my spirits. So I decided to go back to school, went to Oakland Community College in Farmington Hills, uh, worked under Dennis North, who was a great actor and professor there and director, um, and took a bunch of theater courses, took one acting for film class, which helped straighten me out there because, you know, it's different. You get used to being more subtle and all that. And uh, yeah, after about a year of that program, again, no degree, just kind of decided, all right, let me go out and do this thing. Because I saw a bunch of I saw a bunch of students like get comfortable there and stick around and just mm -hmm. do the plays and stay in that world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I knew immediately that I wanted to do something. You know, I wanted to branch out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started traveling. I started taking extra gigs at first. Did a lot of stuff in Chicago for a while. Moved to Chicago for three months just to be in a play. Um, quite by happenstance, I was there for a two week vacation at the end of a rough summer, and then like. I got cast in a play because I went on this audition on like a dare. And then I had to figure out how to stay for three months. So that was fun. And then eventually you just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And um, before you know it, you have something called a career. So Yeah. Yeah. It's many paths, but, you know, we're all trying to get to the same place, right? Absolutely. Um, stunts. When did that start for you? Like, um, when did that start... Like, I get it as a kid, but, like, when did that actually start yeah, in yeah, our yeah. industry? Absolutely. So, in 2009, my, my buddy, uh, Kevin Lurch, uh, good guy, uh, he was going to Grand Valley State University. Woo -woo. And, yeah. And he, he, was, he was in the film program. And so, for his senior thesis, he had to, you know, write and direct a film. And um, in that film, this drama uh, called A Normal Life, there was one fight scene and he knew of my background. You know, we've been friends since high school. So he knew of my background. He was just like, look, can't you just like put something together, like a, f a fight for this thing? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And um, when it got to the day of, I, I realized I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was, you know, because film fighting is so different from real fighting. Um, but nonetheless, we were able to figure it out together and I kind of, you know, helped. I was one of the uh, stunt people in the scene. So I got thrown around a bit kicked on the floor, all that kinds of fun stuff. And uh, yeah, it was cool. It was just a cool process figuring out what shots worked and, and you know, what sold on screen, what didn't. And uh, that was like my first taste of it. And then um, ever since then, it's just been, I've been an actor on certain sets. They'll hire me. Like I got hired to do, which this film never got made, but uh, a sci-fi action short um, that Bub Fish was making at MPI. Um, and he had cast me as the lead and he found out afterwards I did martial arts and he's like, oh, that's great. And then I just kind of fell into choreographing that. And that happens a lot. Like a lot of times directors, um, with all the things they have in their mind, especially if they're, they're new, um, but at all levels, directors kind of will forget <laughs> they have an action sequence in their film. Uh, they don't look at it that way in the script. They're so focused on story. Um, and they'll not hire anyone are oftentimes, as, as a choreographer, I'm, I'm the last person hired, uh, just kind of as an afterthought. Like, oh, we don't want to get our actors hurt. And I'm like, yeah, you, you really don't. <laughs> um, so um, I'm just kind of there, and I'm able to say, well, if you do this and you do that, and then before you know it, people just started referring me that way. For, for listeners, um, to, to not make that mistake in the future, can you define what like an action 
scene or action sequence is. I know some choreographers even say like one punch and is done, that's an action sequence, even a slap across the face people consider it, and some people will consider it, you know, being thrown on a car. So, <laughs> I just call um, it Tuesday. <laughs> Absolutely. No, what I, are you doing next Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> no, hey, you're free. Um, no, uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I believe that stunt performers are stunt performers and fight choreographers and all those people are some of the most uh, underappreciated people in the entertainment industry. Uh, it's it's a shame there's still no Oscar for stunts. Um, those people, many people actually die doing stunts, um, and those stunts make it into a movie or whatever. And um, people put their their bodies at risk um, to make our stories come to life. And I think that should be uh, respected. And um, I would constitute a stunt as anything that um, th anything that puts uh, someone at risk of, of physical harm. So, a punch, uh, a, a pratfall. Um, you know, uh, if you're doing a rom com and somebody gets slapped and has to fall over a table, like we don't think of these little moments because they're not necessarily all action movies. We don't think of them as stunts, but stunt people are doing stuff all the time to help tell our stories. And I think that um, we definitely need to honor that more. Very cool. For sure. Okay, take us from stunts to now you're in Charles Kennedy's Affliction, which has been being, I think it's been, they're, they're in the middle of filming now. Yes. <laughs> they're in the middle of production. Yes. And this is the feature version, because he did a short. He did. He was in here a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how he did the short, and now he's taking and he's going to do a feature. He talks about the, the mental health of it all. And you're playing the lead. What's the lead's character's names? Uh, the lead character is Antoine Gordon. There you go. Um, Any stunts in this one? You gonna do a backflip? <laughs> so far, there, there, there's some mild, there's a mild stunt, but I can't say what it was. All but right. it was the chips. All right. <laughs> so uh, so how, take us, take, take us. How you got involved with Affliction? Yeah. So uh, you know, I've been, I've been acting professionally for like the last, uh, since 2013. I'll say, um, and I've just kind of been around, and uh, I met Charles actually on his short. So that was the first time I ever met Charles was on was on the short version of Affliction, and he needed guess what a fight choreographer. So I uh, I show up, and there's a there's an altercation in that movie. He kind of hired me based on referral, just on recommendation from somebody else, and uh, I come I come to set for one day, and Charles has the most chill and warm inviting sets I've ever been on like it's just you know everybody's there to get the work done but at the same time everyone feels comfortable with each other and there's always jokes and Charles is usually the one inciting them he's, he's always having like these random dance breaks and you know quoting hip-hop and just like doing weird stuff in between takes and uh, I love him for that um, and I immediately felt at home there and so I helped them do the short, um, and then I just sort of wished them luck and kind of went on about my day. And then I ran into him again earlier this year because um, uh, the short we filmed a couple years ago. Uh, so I ran into him earlier this year on the hardest part is remembering, which is a drama. It's my first first lead in the feature film, and it's a drama uh, by Ju Julian Edgar, uh, and that one dealt with. Um, somebody who uh, was recovering from severe depression and uh, was trying to sort of walk his way back into life, um, start dating, start cooking for himself again, all that stuff. And um, 
Charles was the DP, um, which is, you know, one of his main gigs. He's a photographer he's, and he's a director for, of photography as well. Um, and so he saw my work there and just, I guess, watching my, my watching me through the lens every day, he sort of got this vibe that like, you know what, I'm doing this future version of Affliction, I choose you. Um, and so I was really honored that he, he really wanted me for that part. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very cool. I'm going to open it up right now. So these questions are for both of you. So let's have a discussion. Um, one of the things that the Royal Star Arts Institute is constantly trying to do is bring the film community together, um, work with the government uh, hand, if you will, in our film community, which is the Film and Digital Media Office out of Lansing. Um, so we're trying to get our hands into everything as the Institute. One of the questions we always like to ask is, where do you want to see or you see the Michigan film industry growing here in the next the next few years, if you will? Mm-hmm. Where, where would you like to see it go? Uh, you know, I think, um, I think we have a lot of really, really bold and brave and talented independent artists. Uh, and I would just really like to see... Um, I would like to see these these amazing teams be a bit more connected. I feel like everyone has their own individual cliques and, and the people that they're used to. And I feel like I would really like um, there to be, which I appreciate the work that Royal Star is doing, uh, I would like there to be more connectivity and teamwork to make Michigan as a, as a whole kind of a brand um, and, and let the world know that we make quality films here and uh, we're, we're a serious film community just like you know, Seattle or LA or Atlanta or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, building on what you said, you know, there's there's the um, crews that work on commercials and the car commercials and Shinola, and there's the indie film group. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people from the indie film group who would love to get a job on a commercial gig. I know a lot of commercial people who would love to do anything but commercials <laughs> yes and um you know if they just knew about one another that would be uh a great outlet for them and your mixers are a great solution to that i also think there's a lot of people out there who might have gone to graphic design school who might have uh you know might be in theater who aren't necessarily in film yet but could be and think you know well because i didn't go to a film school I, what would I do in the film? And with Walk With Me, uh, my two producers were my college roommates mm. who were a physics major and an English major. But I brought them wow. home because I trusted them and I enjoy working with them and spending time with them. And, um, you know, most things with, with film and production, with the exception of the technical side of film that you obviously really need to know what you're doing there. So much of it is intuitive and so personality-based and so uh, much just sort of based on the the natural skills you have, people skills, attention to detail, creativity, um, that I think that, you know, I would love to see this community grow to include people who might hop on on a production as a PA and go, wow, this is really fun. I'm going to hop on another one and, and begin to bring in people who didn't know they want to be filmmakers who become filmmakers. I agree. I, I like that. Um, here's another one. Uh, what advice would you give? I love this one because <laughs> we work with a lot of kids. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person just starting out in film or wanting to go into film now that we've all had our careers? 
or in our careers, whatever. <laughs> what would you guys say? Um, well, uh, I guess I'll just dovetail off an earlier story and say that, like, it's, it's a real job. Um, you know, don't let anyone discourage you just because, you know, people feel safer doing, you know, going into medicine or law or, or something that is a bit more, um, stable. <laughs> quote Safe. Unquote. Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't let, don't let that deceive you into thinking you can't just work really hard at this and, and gain the skills and do it. I think the other misconception I always hear is that like some people are just born with it and I hate that. I hate that so much. Uh, it took me a while to figure out that what I wanted to do, yes, there's always some raw talent, there's always an interest, but you know, I think that at the end of the day, it really comes down to studying whatever craft you want to pursue and throwing yourself in it and just doing it. You know, you learn by doing. My dad said that he was in business marketing for 25 years, and he just said, like, I learned more on my job than I ever did uh, in, in school, and he had a master's degree, so. Yeah. yeah. I think there's no such thing as the right time to make a movie. We, uh, we, we, we had that situation where we thought, okay, let's wait till our ducks are in a row. When it feels right, then we'll do it. Like we said, just do it. Um, and... Uh, one thing we had on walk with me, um, I don't know if I can say his words. I'll just we had the f up sheet. Mm -hmm. No a, a Google sheet that uh, me and the producer shared. And every mistake we made, and we made more mistakes than uh, non mistakes. We put it on the Google sheet what the mistake was and how much money that mistake cost us. Oh, and to this day, no one has tallied up what the bottom is. But all that to say. Yeah, yeah, trial by error is, I know it's not the, not everyone learns that way, but I think when it comes to filmmaking, trial by error is uh, how you learn the most. And it's a great teacher. And you gotta be okay with not having the most polished product, because you gotta, you, you have to go out and find out what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And just because you don't know it, doesn't mean you can't use it you then have to find the right people who do know what you do or learn it or learn it yeah or learn it yeah um, yeah i really like that because it's really um somebody told me once progress over perfection yeah and you know i think that trips even me up a lot just this idea that like oh i'm not ready or i don't yeah. you know know or whatever but it's yeah you just have to be willing to just <laughs> I tell people all the time you have to be willing to suck a little bit first. Sure. I don't know if I can use that word. I'm, I'm yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, you have to be willing to stink at, at something to, if you really love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always say fail forward. Right. No, he says fail miserably. Yeah, I fail. I see. I he fail says, miserably too. Absolutely. <laughs> just like fail. That's just, my biggest problem. Is like I'm always like, but it's not perfect. It's not like done yet. No, and he's like, fail. fail miserably. Like just. But it's do it. perfect for where don't you were at that time. Don't flirt with the cliff. Yeah. Dive off. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like if I if I hesitated mm -hmm. when we started the Royal Star Arts Institute and Film Festival, like I don't know if we'd ever got it off the ground. Like we there was there was a point where we argued for three months on what the logo should look like, and I'm just like that one. I don't care. We have a film festival to do. Let's get this done. Uh, yeah, it's just fail forward. Like the logo was horrible. We reinvented it five years later. And we just debuted the new logo to this this last past month. Just like who, we'll, we'll we'll just redo it. There's nothing that says you can't 
change things. That's why they invited White out, right? <laughs> and surround, yeah. The other thing I say, surround yourself with people you enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this is an industry where the final product will reflect what the mood was on set. It totally will agree. The personalities of the people behind it. If you don't have chemistry, not just between the actors, but between the director and the DP and the sound and the DP and the sound and the and everybody, if you don't have that chemistry, your product will not be as good as if you did and, and not, even to raise the bar like who e e even if it's not the product it's just like wouldn't it be more enjoyable just to do this with my yeah. friends and the people that i enjoy being around sure. like i like to go into work just hey let's make a movie with my friends like absolutely what's wrong with that, that right. that's a good life yeah no. not, it, it doesn't even have to be the biggest movie it's just like this is what we're going to do today and right. i'm going to do it with these people that i care about what more could you ask for, right? Yeah, and that's what I see a lot with uh, when I look at uh, the films that are made. Successful teams, you know, whether it's Kevin Smith and his New Jersey crew, or you know, um, or the Russo brothers working as a team. You know, like it's mm -hmm. just it's it's always a team. And that's why I'm really excited about uh, Affliction as well, just because Charles is a really fun, good team. Everyone's just there for the best idea and the best product. Very minimal ego. I'm I'm down. Very cool. Well, we're going to wrap this up here. It's been awesome talking to you guys. I have to make some more announcements. These are the Royal Star announcements, which we always do at the end. January 14th, uh, 2020, which is this upcoming year here, just so you guys know. <laughs> 7 p.m., the Filmmaker Community Mixer is happening. Uh, we'll get more information on that. Make sure you're watching our Facebook and our website, because that's where we're going to tell you where it's going to be at. Uh, 2020 Royal Star Film Festival submissions are now open. And if you submit before the super early deadline, which is December 31st, you can save a few bucks. You need to go to filmfreeway.com slash Royal Star Film Festival. Remember, that's with two R's. And the Royal Star Arts Institute is looking for lots of great volunteers. For more information, just email your name and phone number to Gloria at royalstar.org. I would like to thank Jesse Nesser and Philip Sean Devon for being our guests tonight. Thank you for listening to The Call Sheet this week. I'm Luke Castle with Gloria Kohler, and that's, that's a wrap. Created by Luke Castle and is produced by Gloria Kohler and is part of the Royal Star Arts Institute's initiative to bring together the filmmaking community of Michigan. The Royal Star Arts Institute is a nonprofit serving the filmmaking and art communities of Michigan. For more information on the call sheet and the nonprofit, follow them on Facebook and visit them at Royal Star with two Rs.org.